Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. So now listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're reviewing the latest record from rapper Tyler, the Creator. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. But first, we will revisit the story of the 1977 progressive rock masterpiece, Going for the One, with Yes's John Anderson. bit of the song Going for the One, the title track off Yes's 1977 album. Today, we're doing a classic album dissection of Going for the One, exploring its context, history, and its rich music. Later in the show, we're going to talk with Yes's lead singer, John Anderson, about the writing and recording process and how Going for the One impacted the band's trajectory forever. But first, for listeners who do not know why Yes was important, uh, Yes is one of the foundational bands in the progressive rock movement that came mostly out of England uh, just in the years after Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the psychedelic explosion of 67. You had a slightly younger than the Beatles generation of mostly upper middle class or just plain upper class art students in England who with Sgt. Peppers were given permission by none other than the Beatles to begin to think of rock as capital A, (laughs) art. What's more, these are kids who had grown up with violin and piano lessons, right? And grand pianos at home, and maybe even a grandfather's uh, or grandmother's Stradivarius, Mm -hmm. right? These were excellent musicians, steeped in classical music, who decide to take the consciousness, uh, in every sense of that word, psychedelic consciousness, uh, the consciousness of what could be done in multi-track recording in the studio, the uh, virtuosity that they had mastered, even as young uh, musicians, uh, to put it all together in this mix that right in the name of the genre says, progressive, we are moving rock forward. Now, a lot of excess was committed in the name of progressive rock, but the best bands in the genre, uh, I contend, never lost sight of the second part of that genre name, rock. They could be ambitious. They could do multi-part suites. They could do 
you know, triple albums, but they continued to rock with a precision and a melodic power that the best rock and roll always had, right? And, and you know, top of the class was yes. Well, and they had the songs. Not only were they virtuosos. I mean, Chris Squire, among the greatest bass players in rock history. Steve Howe, just an incredible guitarist, seemed anything with strings on it. Steve Howe could learn it and master it and become one of the best players in the world on it. And then you had, uh, you know, the drummer, Bill Bruford, who overlaps with the King Crimson uh, show that we did. Uh, You know, one of the key drummers, I mean, a teenager, essentially, steeped in jazz, coming into both of these bands and, and really setting... Uh, a template for them. You know, we people used to laugh about uh, Yes and progressive rock and make fun of it because it was pretentious, you know. Uh, Rick Wakeman wore a cape while he was playing these organs, you know, and it's, <laughs> yeah. suddenly it was wizards and, you know... He was surrounded yeah. by like 14 analog synthesizers and organs yeah. and Wurlitzer pianos. And, you know, they, they, they were nothing. I it mean, was you know. lovingly pretentious. But at the same time, you know, getting back to the point, there were songs there. You yes. know, uh, one of the reasons that Wakeman at, at one point quit Yes is because he missed the songwriting that defined the early albums of the band. And he thought they had lost their way somewhat. Uh, after uh, a half dozen of those records in the, in the 70s and, and left the band momentarily before he returned for the one that we're going to talk about uh, in a minute. Well, and the name uh, that you didn't mention yet was vocalist John Anderson. Yes. It was Anderson and Squire who founded the band in London in 1968. Uh, many members have come and gone through the years. Nineteen is mm. my count, and somewhere there is an obsessive yes fan who will point out somebody who came and went within half an hour, and I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right, Greg. I think even the hardest core yes fan will agree that uh, the first album, Yes, in 1969, and the second, Time in a Word, in 1970, uh, the band is still struggling to find its identity. There's a world, and the world is love, and it's right for me. It's right for me, and the world is love. There are hints of what will come there, but those are not great records. They're, they're still uh, tethered to what's happening uh, in the English rock scene, and they're they're covering songs, and they're they're searching for an identity. Members are coming and going. Uh, the first three classic Yes albums are the Yes album in 1971. Fragile, later that same year. I'll be the roundabout. The words will make you out and out. I spend the day away. morning driving through the sun and in and out the valley. And close to the edge in 1972. That gives us the classic. Uh, quintet lineup of John Anderson on vocals, Chris Squire on bass, Steve Howe on guitar, 
Bill Bruford on drums and Rick Wakeman on keyboards. That gives us a lot of the hits that uh, you hear to this day on classic rock radio, and it cements the yes sound. Now, although I am a fan, I will say they went off the deep end (laughs) after Close to the Edge. Tales from Topographic Oceans, 1973, Relayer in 1974 is more pared down. Uh, Wakeman has left, and, and Patrick Moraz comes in on keyboards. Bill Bruford has left, and Alan White, who is no slouch. No. I mean, his last gig had been with John Lennon's Plastic mm-hmm. Ono Band, and he was a great session musician. He's a great drummer. He steps into Yes and, and eventually grows into the role. But I can't listen to Tales from Topographic. I don't know about you. <laughs> no. My life is too short yeah. to listen to Tales from Topographic no. Oceans. I think I listened to it when it came out at some point, and I don't think I've ever returned to it. Maybe it's great, but I, you know, uh, I haven't given it, it the time. It's painful, yeah. and Relayer is slight. So Yes goes on hiatus for a while, partly for that great uh, mid-70s British rock royalty tradition of the tax rate was so onerous in the UK, they had to go live in another country mm. for a couple of years in order to uh, to bring their taxes more into line. You saw the Rolling Stones do that. You saw Pink Floyd do that. But what happens in 76, 77? Yes is starting to think about coming together again and making another album. This thing called punk Mm -hmm. blows up in England. We see Johnny Rotten on stage with a I hate Pink Floyd (laughs) t-shirt. We see a return to uh, primitive, emotional, straight from the gut rock and roll. You only know three chords? That's probably one more than yeah, you need, buddy. Plenty. That's plenty. Uh, you know, just tell us something new yeah. and do it short and do it sharp and do it loud. Um, I'm fascinated by what became of some of the progressive rock bands in that era. You have Genesis pare down to a trio and make, uh, and then there were three in 1978. You have Jethro Tull make essentially its poppiest album, Heavy Horses, in 78. Pink Floyd always remains Pink Floyd, but they get pure, downright Orwellian with the uh, allegories on animals in 77. But I think the band that rose to the punk rock challenge, best of all, was Yes with Going for the One, and they got there first in 1977. They're still in tax exile. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're living, but you know, they're not living like in the country. They're living in Montreux, (laughs) which is best known on the banks of Lake Geneva in Switzerland for its casinos, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're rubbing elbows in tuxedos with James Bond. Think of it that way. (laughs) Famous recording studio there, uh, site of the Montreux Jazz Festival. Queen would record many albums there for the same reasons, tax exile. Yes comes back together, and Rick Wakeman is is ready to rejoin, and they kick Patrick Moraz out of the keyboardist role rather unceremoniously in order to make way for Rick Wakeman, his 43 keyboards, and uh, his cape. (laughs) 
<laughs> he comes back, right? Alan White finally uh, uh, rises to the occasion as drummer, and Yes puts out uh, what is, by Yes standards, especially in the wake of Close to the Edge or Tales from Topographic Ocean, this is a focused rock record, all of five songs mm-hmm. long. When we return, we continue our discussion about going for the one with Yes singer John Anderson. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we are doing a classic album dissection of the great Yes record, Going for the One. Earlier in the show, we talked about the background of the band, including the personnel changes and creative evolution up to that point. Now, we're going to dive into what the writing and recording process was like in Montreux, Switzerland. We're really excited to welcome the one and only lead singer of Yes, John Anderson. John, thanks so much for being on Sound Opinions. Excellent. Thanks. It's great to be with you guys. So, So set the scene for us. How did you guys start making Going for the One? Well, the first thing was uh, it was a tax year, we, we were told. So we had to do something outside of England. And we said, okay. And a friend of mine said he'd been to, uh, to Montreux. There was a great studio there. So we, we, we went, and it, it is a remarkable part of the world. Uh, Montreux is on, on Lake Geneva, and it's surrounded by these incredible mountains with snow on the top and all that kind of thing. It's very magical. And the studio was perfect and beautiful. Uh, we set up, we started rehearsing. I'd already started an idea with Steve, which actually became Awaken, because we'd been on tour. That was the thing about, yes, it was either you're on tour or in the studio, on tour in the studio for seven years. It was like... After a while, yeah. you, your brain is mush. But I remember this morning in a Hil- Hilton hotel, and I was heading to the breakfast table in the morning about 8.30, and I was walking past Steve Howe's uh, his room, and there was smoke coming from underneath the door, so I knew he was stoking up on a joint. So <laughs> I thought I'd have a quick uh, joint with him. And he was playing this riff down And I said, I'll see you later, Steve. I'm just gonna have breakfast. He said, okay, and he carried on playing it. And I came back half an hour later, still playing it. I said, Steve, can you change key? And he went. And I said, put on your tape recorder. And he he started playing it, and I started singing this uh, sort of a a line against the rhythm he was playing. And so on. And then I said to him, okay, we've got that. That's the beginning of the, the verse. Now, how many chords can you play at the same time without repeating? So he started playing them and he's recording. Probably about eight chords, nine chords. And I started singing, Work is a man set to ply on historical life, regaining the flower of the fruit of his truth. 
part two. And uh, I remembered that tape when we got to Montreux and we listened to it and started rehearsing that. And, and basically the way I worked with the band was uh, I'd set it all up that what we're going to do is like the two verses like that. And then what we need is uh, a middle section. And I was I had my harp with me. So I kept playing this down, 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 down. Very simple, very simple middle, because there was so much music before that, it, mm. it just needed something light and serene, if you like. And Steve did some beautiful slide steel guitar and there's a kind of wash of sound, and uh, Chris came in with a beautiful bass line, and Rick had joined the band, which really kind of freaked us all out, because up until probably two weeks earlier, we were still waiting for Patrick Moraz to turn up. He mm. was in Brazil, as far as we knew, and we'd been rehearsing for three weeks by then, and it looked like Patrick wasn't going to turn up. So we thought, okay, uh, Let's find out if Rick's, <laughs> Rick's available. And we found out he was, and he wanted to rejoin the band. So we let Patrick go and explain the situation. So there was Rick getting ready to do a solo in the middle of Awaken. And uh, he would play it on his keyboard. And I just, I just kind of felt that it wasn't the right thing. And I just turned around out of the blue and said, Rick, would you like to record in a church like a church organ, a real one. And he said, oh, yeah, that would be so cool. So we found out from the, the engineer at the studio that there was a, a, a town called Vevey, about 10 miles away, and they had a most beautiful church and a great church organ. And that's where we, we recorded the, the organ for, for the middle of uh, the best part, I think, the most wonderful part of Awaken, where it, it lifted the whole piece up. And you did it via a phone line, right? Well, that was the great thing. We set up, uh, me and me and Rick, I was in the pews uh, with my harp, and he was up in the church organ area, and we microphoned up the church organ and the harp. So we'd recorded at the same time, and he had headphones, I had headphones. And then we found out that actually we had a mixer, and if you plug the mixer into the telephone lines... It is so clean in, in Switzerland that they could plug in the headphones or a, a lead into the phone jack in this studio and get a clear, clear uh, recording. So when we did that middle section, Chris and Alan and, and Steve had headphones on and they were listening as we were listening to what we were doing and we could hear them playing. So wow. it was like remote, uh, <laughs> remote recording, which is what we do a lot now.
I've read a quote uh, where you said uh, you always love listening to uh, Awaken, and you felt that first when you recorded it. At last, we'd created a masterwork. Now, going for the ones, your eighth album, and there are plenty of people, yes, super fans, your your, your two interviewers included, who would say, "Well, there were a lot of masterpieces." You know, not not to denigrate Awaken, but uh, wow, you know, what was it that grabbed you so much? Do you know? I, I think it was. It, it had been such a big stepping stone to do Fragile, and there were four large music pieces on, on that album, and then we moved into Close to the Edge, and that was a breakthrough on, on every level. And uh, in some ways, we went into another situation, which was Topographic Oceans, which was a, not the easiest experience for everybody concerned, especially Rick. He just didn't like what happened and the tour was a disaster for him and it really unbalanced the the band on many levels then we did gates of delirium and when we got to awaken i thought oh boy if we hadn't done all this music we would have never have done awaken so mm-hmm. you know you think about it and you realize that we we actually got to the top of the mountain with awaken but it was a slow climb doing all these other works of music so in some ways yes music is not hard to explain it's not commercial in a sense it's not radio music most of all so of course we've had our hit records i think we've only had three which is amazing that we survived 50 years or whatever uh, musically speaking yeah, and, and that song, too, Awaken, uh, seems to be very much... I mean, people have, have heard it as a hymn. There's a very spiritual quality to it. Those lyrics, you, you made it sound like the lyrics were very spontaneous when you were in that room with Steve Howe recording it in, initially. I mean, what were you drawing inspiration from, from a lyrical standpoint? A, f- a feeling of uh, contentment that we were working on music that I believe was the probably the best music we had uh, tried to do over over that 10-year period. When I look back at the songs, I wrote a song with Alan White, but it was, uh, it was all about uh, a sculptor, sculpturing uh, his, uh, his lady of his life who, who, who eventually passes away in the, within the song. Yeah, turn of the century, right, because it's, uh, yeah. it's the yeah. story of Rowan, the sculptor, right? Yeah. Realizing the form of the stone Set hands moving Roy has his heart Through his working hands Put to mold his passion into clay Like the sun And again I walked in the studio early at 10 or 9.30 and there was Alan playing these chords and I automatically started singing and and sketching down some lyrics and then Steve arrived and he started playing the chords and I said, suggested to him, listen, Steve, why don't you just play solo guitar all around what I'm doing? Uh, Chords are here, you know, on the the piano. So he he got the idea right away and to write something that had a storyline and it built and there was something very magical about writing that song. Mm-hmm. 
Wonder Stories and uh, Awaken, of course. And my main thrust in terms of lyric was always to try to figure out what I'm thinking about the diversity of, of uh, spirituality on, on the, in the world. And I've been reading so much about it over the years, and I'd sort of found that there are certain levels of lyric that you can actually sing without getting into being a bit sort of churchy or preachy sort of thing. It's a, it's a delicate balance where you're, you're trying to explain to myself what, what I'm thinking about. The other thing I rem- remember uh, as a Yes fan, this record coming out, you know, during the height of punk in, in, in the UK, and, and that was in the air, and, you know, progressive rock was being sneered at by some of these new upstarts, and um, <laughs> you, you, uh, you kind of, I thought you were almost poking fun. Uh, there was an element of humor in this record. It's kind of sly, but I, I, I'm going for the one where you talk about uh, your cosmic mind. I almost yes. felt like that was kind of like a, a little joke, a little in joke about oh yeah, that John Anderson, he's the cosmic mind guy, you know. It's like well, and then it comes around, comes around to that line which which kills me every time, John. Where you're like <laughs> you're rocking, rolling, you know what I mean? It's like it's like there's not a difference between you and the Clash. It's all about the emotion in the music, you know. Very true. You know, we were surviving punk and then disco. It's kind of. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I agree. It was uh, I was making light of myself, uh, making light of the idea that I might be a bit too cosmic, man. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that song rocks like crazy. Going for the one with um, yeah, we we used to open up the tour with that song. And, yeah, wow. Yeah, amazing. What a great song. How how on pedal steel and you know he, he gets sort of on it's almost like a slide guitar it's a bluesy really you know just a intense blues feel and I don't you know I don't think you know people talked about yes oh they're a they're, they know they're blues you know and here here was just like a proto blues type of feel. How did that emerge that uh, Howe was playing pedal steel on that song and that feel, that sort of bluesy country feel came came across? It just, out of left field, I was singing the song, which is me on guitar, thrashing away on my acoustic guitar, and he's setting up the steel guitar, and I'm thinking, are you sure <laughs> you're going <laughs> to play it on that sort of thing? But I didn't say anything until we, you know, Alan counted it and then, it's like, oh my God! We're, we're rocking and rolling here, and it was a very exciting day when we recorded that song. Well, there's an element of uplift 
uh, uh, it's anthemic, it's inspiring. And you've said it was, because you had written the song, and, and the story goes, and you know, some of these stories, John, are apocryphal perhaps, right? But the story goes that, that hearing a demo of that was one of the things that convinced Rick Wakeman to return to the band. And, you know, of course, it's the title track. And, um, you know, but, but there's something about it. Something like, we're still here. We're embracing life. We're alive. There's this element of sport, right? Of, of like grabbing the brass ring, of being the gold standard. It's, um, it's unusual in the yes canon uh, for, for being uh, so, so uh, just like, you know, you can do it. Come on. Yeah. Let's do it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it happened. It, it, I think it happened on every album. There was a certain point in, in each album where we were trying to figure out, are we doing the right thing here? And then all of a sudden, we, we get into something and, and we realized, it's okay, don't worry, we're on the right track. What was that turning that point a, for, for this record? Awaken when yeah. we, came, we were driving back, me and Rick from the church uh, in Vevey, and uh, he said, I'm going to write out a choir part for this song and I took a deep breath and said oh that that would be so good (laughs) and when he did that and then the choir came in and sang and I didn't go to the actual recording because I I just wanted to let Rick get on with it and uh, I came in as uh, the engineer was mixing it and I'm sure I was floating about a foot off the ground (laughs) I was so so mm-hmm. exhilarating that people were going to be able to hear this music and this choir coming in at the right time and oh my god into the the theories that people have of this as kind of being a if not a reinvention of the band you guys rethinking it a little bit in terms of how you wanted to approach things or or do you feel like that's been overblown like oh this is yes's response to all this new music coming out at that time no no i i was thinking that we were we were still on the same path and we 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 got to the top of the mountain of musical ideas that we'd done over the years and we'd actually finished up with that <laughs> wonderful work and mm-hmm. it was done in with with love and hope and, uh, and and belief system that we had at that time and uh, you know being in a band is is is, is like a it's like jello sometimes <laughs> you're never quite sure if it's going to form correctly or come together correctly. It's like some, some tours, uh, not everybody's happy, you know, and you, and you overwork, get overworked by management. We actually did a tour just to pay our tax bill. Mm. It's like <laughs> in, yeah. in the seventies, we just had to keep going, keep going, keep going. And then towards the end of the seventies to finish up with an album like Going for the One, was such a relief on many levels for everybody, I think. We have been talking to John Anderson, the lead singer of Yes, for many, many years, uh, many masterpiece albums and 15 studio albums. John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it very much. 
I don't know about you, Mr. Cott, but the uh, 14-year-old Jim DeRogatis was <laughs> really excited to talk to John Anderson again. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it sounds like you hoped John Anderson would. Yeah, he, and he hasn't man changed. in the 70s with the same sounding voice as he did when he was being interviewed in the 70s. Man, know? I was high for a week. <laughs> If you're a member of our Patreon community, you can hear more of our interview with John Anderson, including a conversation about his latest solo album and the story of the last time he saw his close friend, yes bassist Chris Squire, before Chris's death in 2015. When we return, Greg and I will dissect two tracks off Going for the One in depth. And later, we'll review the new record by rapper Tyler the Creator. That's next on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're doing a deep dive on the progressive rock band, Yes. We want to wrap up our classic album dissection of Going for the One, this masterpiece by Yes from 1977, by talking about two songs we didn't discuss as much with John, one for each of us that we truly love. And you are going to go first. Yeah, Jim, I I wanted to... uh you know, shed some light and some love on, on Parallels, uh, which is uh, the third of three songs on side one of the record. Um, I, I just thought it was uh, a masterful example of what they were going for on this particular album, um, that more rocking approach that you were talking about. Um, here was a band clearly, uh, you know, excited about being back in the studio, creating, creating music, and creating music that really moved, that had, had a sort of a pulse to it and a sort of a, a dynamic that had been missing on, the, on at least the two previous records. Um, Parallels was sort of a, a, a leftover in some ways. Squire had written the song originally intended for a solo album called Fish Out of Water that he put out in 1975. But he really, uh, at the end of the day, he decided it didn't really fit in with the theme of that record. Um, so it was resurrected for, the, for these particular recording sessions. Uh, and, and when he pulled it out, uh, the band uh, was pretty excited about it. They thought it had a lot of, a lot of uh, potential. It did not have any central guitar riff. Enter Steve Howe. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to do those. Yeah. Um, Howe um, was, I, I think, just a key part of this record, Jim. I, I, I think his... His role in this record was, uh, was crucial in the way it sounded and the more rocking approach. So you get a very rock song with a very rock Steve Howe guitar solo in it. And then it's backed up by that roaring pipe organ by Rick Wakeman. Recorded at the <laughs> church that John Anderson was telling us about. Exactly. I mean, and, and they were wiring this up by a, by a phone call. You know, it was just like incredible. <laughs> hey, here's this band. You think, oh, they're all high tech and they're artsy guys. But, you know, here, here they were. Uh, and, and, and John Anderson just marveling, you know, the phone service in Switzerland is just incredible. <laughs> Because it sounds like you're in the neck, you know, in the room with that person. Well, that's exactly what this Rick, Rick Wakeman pipe organ sounded like, and this song just rocks. You know, it it, it is one of those one of those yes songs that, uh, you know, is within the progressive rock realm. It's not a short two three minute, you know, pop single ditty. It is definitely progressive rock, but emphasis, as you said, on the rock. Those four letters. 
to me were the, were the template for this record. And this to me is the sterling example on the record of that approach. It's not the best known song on the record, it's not the most revered song on the record, but I think it is emblematic of where they were at this time. Parallels is a great song, Greg. So I want to talk about Wondrous Stories, uh, one of two songs on the album that are written by John Anderson alone. Uh, He was a key, key player on this record. He said that it was a beautiful day when he was living in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of those days you want to remember for years afterwards. And the lyrics kind of spilled out uh, all at once, came into his head, he went home, he wrote them down. Uh, This is a song, he says, about the joys of life as opposed to the uptightedness of some aspects Mm -hmm. of life. You know... Bless John Anderson. He's a hippie, man. He's in his eighth decade, you know, seventh mm-hmm. decade. He's he's still a hippie. I love that. Um, you know, I, I think that the knock on progressive rock and the knock I've gotten as a critic my whole professional career is that there's a weird split, Jim, uh, between your love for progressive rock and psychedelic rock and punk rock. I don't know. You know, as a kid growing up in Jersey City, it was an awful place to grow up. It was a tough upbringing. Uh, I was happy for any way to escape Jersey City, whether it was rolling around in the <laughs> dirt with the punks or soaring toward the light angelic with the progressive mm-hmm. rockers. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go somewhere else. And, you know, Wondrous Stories is is a song about that, is a song about imagining yourself in an idealistic, utopian environment. Uh, you know, I loved Lord of the Rings. I played me some Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I was a fan of, of fantasy. Uh, you know, and I wanted to return to hear your wondrous stories. Mm-hmm. Hearing, 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 as John Anderson sings. Um, I would encourage anybody uh, to look this up on YouTube. It's a really short pop song by Yes Standards, three and a half minutes. But in those three and a half minutes, Steve Howe plays, uh, it switches back and forth between three different instruments, like nonstop. Mm-hmm. He's playing acoustic guitar. He's playing mandolin. He's playing electric guitar. Wakeman's doing, you know, th- this great, I think it's a polymog, but that might just be the Hammond, or it's probably both. Um, there's a really neat, uh, very subtle, which is not something uh, progressive rock gets gets credit for, a uh, very subtle rhythmic shift in, in an unexpected way that Squire and White lock into. But it's, it's John Anderson's song, and he really steals the show with a vision of a better place where we can marvel in wonder. I woke the 
opinions on yes and going for the one leave us a message on our website soundopinions.org if you got a man you should cut it off get your passport cause we run it off we can sit and talk you can tell me everything that's on your chest baby get it off you are my type you a bright light i'm like a moth this is not a game but before we start what's your name girlfriend what's your name what's your name girlfriend what's your name that is a little bit of the track what's your name from the uh, sixth album, sixth solo album by Tyler, the Creator. Debuted at number one, Greg, on the Billboard album chart. Tyler, the Creator, raised in Los Angeles, a musical kid who started out early on as part of the Odd Future core group of musicians, right? 2009 uh, released his first solo mixtape, but was working with the members of Odd Future notably uh, Earl Sweatshirt, and uh, producing and collaborating with Frank Ocean. On his own, uh, Tyler has been prolific, to say the least, uh, and has grown in full view with the public from that snotty kid Mm. who was out to push every shock button he could, (laughs) offending everyone and anyone as part of Odd Future, uh, doing something very different and musically super ambitious. As a, as a solo artist. Let's dive in to a track that will surprise people who have not heard Tyler's work since Odd Future. This is a two-part song called Sweet slash I Thought You Wanted to Dance from Tyler, the creator's new album, Call Me If You Get Lost. The plan was to stick my toe in and check the temperature, but Appelle-moi si tu te perds. 
wanted to dance the uh, two-part track from Tyler the Creator's new album, Call Me If You Get Lost. Uh, Jim, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it, it's, it's important to remember that when Odd Future was breaking, uh, Tyler was all of 20 years old. Yeah. He was still a young kid. He was acting like a young kid. Uh, wanted to get noticed. Transgressive humor was a good way to get people riled up, get some attention. Uh, beneath that, there was an artist waiting to break out, and he has broken out. It's important also to remember that Odd Future gave us uh, Earl Sweatshirt and Frank Ocean. Yeah. Two real artists who we were thinking, okay, these, these two may have a longer career than Tyler. Tyler could be just a passing fad. Well, Tyler's proven us all wrong, including me. I'll admit that. I didn't think that Tyler was going to be uh, a, a long-lived artist, uh, given the start that he had. Well, it was really hard, Greg, to get past the misogyny, yeah. the homophobia, and just the plain old juvenile humor. And I, and again, I get it because he was young. But, you know, I'm very impressed with how he's grown as an artist. I really like Flower Boy in 2017 and Igor in 2019. Uh, the maturity that we saw in, in, in the way he was... Uh, dealing with uh, lyrically the vulnerability that he was displaying on those records, the musicality in those records. Call Me If You Get Lost is an extension of that theme. Um, I don't think it's as consistent as either of those two records. I think Igor uh, was close to, uh, if not one of the best hip-hop records of the last decade. It was yeah. kind of his yeah. version of a soul record. Um, and on this record, too, you, you've seen that two-part track we just played. The musical ambition, there's reggae on this record, synth pop, uh, soul, uh, the melodic elements of, of soul music in addition to uh, hardcore uh, hip-hop. You know, a track like Lumberjack, that could have been um, on the Def Jux label or, yeah. around 2000. It reminded me of that Cannibal Ox, Cold Vein record. Rose Royce pull up, black boy hop out, shout out to my mother and my father didn't. Hold up! The track we just played was the middle part of a trilogy that he inserts within that album, What's Your Name? Sweet, I Thought You Wanted to Dance, Wilshire, where he's talking about a relationship as, as it's evolving. So he's making these super ambitious tracks musically and uh, lyrically. There are tracks where it seems a little bit tossed off, mm -hmm. a little bit less than, you know, uh, almost like he's playing to some of the cliches that surround his past reputation. But that track manifesto, I think that's a real uh, eye-opener for me, uh, where he's talking about this notion of, you know, you're trying to tell me what I should be and how I should mature. He talks in that track about, I came a long way from my past. It's obvious. Yeah. And he knows it. He knows. He's self-aware. He knew what people thought of him. He knew how he addressed it. And now he's saying, don't box me and don't tell me I need to be more woke than I already am. I know I ain't got the answer, but I ain't chilly with y'all just to be a dance. I'm a groove to my own drums. Sunlight in my shadow, baby. Move to my soul comes. Let them serpents rattle, baby. The lines you know? that jump out in Manifesto are, I was canceled before cancel right. was with Twitter fingers protesting outside my shows. I gave them the middle finger. Um, he doesn't apologize for his past, uh, and he incorporates parts of it here. But the thing that tips off that there is more going on, there apparently always was. I've always said nothing wears quicker in pop music than intentional shock, trying right. to shock, right? 
But Baudelaire, you know, he's playing a character on this album. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Charles Baudelaire, and it opens with a track called Sir Baudelaire, and DJ Drama is sort of the narrator throughout. You know, who was Baudelaire? The great romantic myth of uh, living outside, well, as Patti Smith's, Put it living outside yeah. the laws of society, 19th, right? Nineteenth-century French poet, yeah. Okay, you know, and so um, I don't know if I entirely forgive him for some of the hateful lyrics, uh, but putting them in this greater intellectual context, pointing out that he's now thirty, uh, having come out of the closet as no one's exactly sure, bisexual or gay, uh, but but being open to uh, uh, same-sex relations in a way that he, he was previously just dismissing them with a hateful word. There are still some hateful words on this mm-hmm. album, not the uh, F word, but the N word and the B word, but it's coming together as part of this stew where he's trying to grow up, he's saying, I was this person, I am now uh, someone deeper. It is not lyrically perfect. There are, you know, there are way too many references to passports, uh, yachts, and, uh, you know, world travel. A little, I've made it to the top of the mountain, and I'm going to tell you how rich I am. I really had trouble processing that, because it almost seemed like there's parts of it were tongue-in-cheek. But you're right, that's a theme in this record where he's talking about these materialistic things yeah. and at the other times sort of, you know, going past that and dismissing it. Well, he, you know, he brings them up and then he points out that they don't mean much because I haven't got a love in my life. You know, they, you know, Tyler, it turns out, and we would have <laughs> never thought this when they controversially headlined the Pitchfork Music Festival way back when, Odd Future. He just wants to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> who knew? Who, well, and who doesn't, right. you know? And... Um, Um, I think the thing that wins the day is the sheer musical invention uh, refusing when he won the Grammy for uh, Best Mm -hmm. Rap Album. He was protesting that, you know, I'm not just rap. That is part of who I am, but I am soul, I am R&B, I am pop, I am am rock, I am pure experimental. This is a a kaleidoscopic record, uh, and it's brilliant. And I think he has that very much in common with Frank Ocean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who who similarly, you know, refuses to be confined by genre. And so even if you have written Tyler, the Creator, off, I think uh, you need to go back. I'd agree with you. Igor is the better record. We never got around to reviewing it. But Call Me If You Get Lost is one you need to hear as well. That's what we thought of the latest from uh, Tyler, the Creator, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk with Richard Thompson, the great guitarist, on the occasion of his new memoir. And this week on our bonus podcast, we're taking another trip to the desert island to play a song we cannot live without. To take our Sound Opinions survey, go to soundopinions.org. The link is on our homepage. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. 
Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne. Our intern is Sol Delgadillo, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 